Good morning, everyone. A warm greetings to you all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm so sorry that I can't be with you this morning. Unfortunately, Wednesday evening, I started feeling ill, and then Carol did Friday evening, and we have both tested positive for COVID, and so we're hanging out at home. But I didn't want to miss being with you again. And I look forward to being with you next week to give you a report on our time in Virginia, my son's graduation. But I wanted to take the opportunity to be with you once again, at least by video, uh, to preach from God's holy word. So thank you for allowing me this opportunity. Thanks for your patience and bearing with me. And we're looking forward to, even though there's distance between us um, physically, we know that we're together at the throne of grace with God's holy word as our authority. And so let's go ahead and go into a time together as we continue through the Gospel of Matthew. In the Milwaukee Sentinel many years ago, the following story appeared, and it's a common one. But a despondent woman was walking along the beach when she saw a bottle lying there in the sand. She picked it up and pulled out the cork and whoosh, a big puff of smoke appeared. You have released me from my prison, said the genie. To show my thanks, I grant you three wishes, but take care. For each wish, your life mate will receive double of whatever you request. Why is that, the woman asked. He left me for another woman. Those are just the rules, the genie said. So the woman shrugged and asked for a million dollars. Whoosh, a flash of light, and there was a pile of money at her feet. But then at that same moment, far off away, her wayward husband also had a pile of money twice as big that appeared at his feet. And what would your second wish be, he asked. I want the world's most expensive diamond necklace. Another flash of light, and there she was holding this beautiful, precious treasure. But far off in that same place, her husband was now scrambling to find a place or a broker where he could sell this newfound treasure. Then the woman thought and reflected and she asked, is it really true that my husband has $2 million and more jewels than I do? and that he gets double whatever I wish for? The genie said, indeed, those are the rules. I'm ready for my last wish, she said. I want you to scare me half to death. <laughs> of course, this is a mythical story, but it hits close to home, doesn't it, when we think of revenge and retaliation against those who have wronged us. We might hide behind the phrase getting even or getting the last laugh, or giving him his comeuppance. But it's still the same thing, revenge. The world has always been full of blood feuds, whereby tribes and families seek revenge and retribution against one another for offenses committed. Think of the wars between mafia families over time as they struggle to control areas with their nefarious activities. Think of tribal wars in recent memory, whether it's in Africa, whether it's in Southeast Asia, even Latin America. These wars that endure for generations because one tribe just continually seeks revenge against the other, who then in turn seek revenge. Think of family disputes that go on for years, such as between the Hatfields and the McCoys a hundred years ago in the Appalachians. When we were first starting a ministry in the Middle East, I was having a conversation with a young Egyptian man, and as you know, the Arab Middle East is full of revenge and retaliation. 
And he said something I'll never forget. He said, if you harm anyone in my family, even after 50 years, I will not forget. And I'm still working to seek revenge. That is why battles and disputes and political divisions exist for generations. So how do we overcome this thirst for vengeance and revenge that runs deeply within us? As we continue in our time in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus brings us to the next statement in the law that he will define and refine for our understanding. You'll recall that with each statement in this sermon, the teachings of Jesus get more and more difficult. As he teaches us how to be salt and light, he has spoken to his disciples about anger, which leads to murder, about lust, which leads to divorce and, and adultery, about oath-taking and being a man or a woman of your word. With each one, the challenge goes deeper. It's not enough to look at actions alone. Jesus looks at the heart, at the attitudes that flow from the heart, which lead to the actions that we take. Today, Jesus is going to speak to us about dealing with those who offend us or who hurt us on a personal level and moving against the tide which says, get your own revenge or defend your honor or do it to the dude before the dude do it to you. Jesus says things like, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, give generously to all. How is that even possible in today's world? Well, left to our own devices, it isn't possible. And that's the whole point of what Jesus is teaching. The harder we try in our own effort to fulfill the law, the more we will realize it is not possible. We need to be completely dependent upon the Spirit of God, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. This is a law that the redeemed are to live out. And as Jesus commands it, he lets us know that he has first fulfilled it, and he empowers us to be able to carry it out. So may the Lord give ears as we hear what he has in his word today. Now, as is our tradition, we read the word of God, and I invite you to stand as I read our passage for today, Matthew 5, verses 38 to 42. Matthew 5, verses 38 to 42. And the authoritative an inspired word of God says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is the word of the Lord, given under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit for the edification of God's people. May we receive it as a gift from our Father, and may we understand it as the Holy Spirit gives understanding. Please be seated. As you follow along in your sermon outline, let me first begin by greeting those who are joining us online. This is a bit unusual, I know, for us to be meeting this way. Thank you for standing with us, for praying with us, for being patient as we go through yet another challenge in this interesting time in our culture's history. Yes, the COVID thing has hit our home for right now, but by God's grace, within a few days, we'll be out of it, and hopefully we'll be all back together again 
uh, soon and very soon. Our first major point today is an eye on retaliation. Now you'll notice in your sermon outline I have five major points and on only one do I have subpoints, and so you can follow along. But the first one is an eye on retaliation. Look at your copy of God's Word. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, Matthew 5, verse 38. This is the fifth of six examples that Jesus gives concerning the understanding and intention of the law. You'll recall that Jesus is contrasting his teaching of the law, giving its true understanding, and he's contrasting that with the traditions that the Jews had built up over centuries since the law was first given to Moses 1,400 years before Jesus. The saying, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, was actually a statement of balance concerning punishment for a crime. This saying is found in the Old Testament. It was also seen in other places in the ancient Near East. It set the limits on punishment and was meant to be retribution, not punitive, and how it was carried out. According to the law, the punishment must be appropriate to the crime. Its application was for cases that were legal and social and not personal and individual. It was to punish evil for the good of society. It was not to be used as a tool for personal revenge and vindication. Think, even in our own day, but Think of any era of history that you may have studied, how many families have struggled for long periods of time because someone got offended and sought not only to get even, but to gain back his honor. Forgiveness and reconciliation go against the grain of culture. They go against the grain of our sinful nature. And it's into that context that Jesus' words that he gives here are not only revolutionary, they're shocking. To repeat the point, what Jesus is addressing here in these verses is personal interaction between individuals and not legal action that the state is to take against criminals. It is in fact the responsibility of the state to protect citizens and to see that crime is punished. Therefore, the punishment is an eye for an eye. It's to be dished out by the state and not by the individual. It was to be appropriate and proportionate, but it was to be given to promote social order. The desire for revenge is often as easy for us as is the ability to breathe. And even if we do not have the opportunity to get revenge through our words and our actions, we imagine ways that we could do so if we were given the opportunity. The desire to stand up for our rights, for our ways of doing things, for our good, is as natural to us as is walking. It is how we are wired in the flesh, in our sinful nature, in our natural propensity to want to defend ourselves and to upkeep our own honor. To be selfish and possessive with our own possessions is as natural to us as eating and drinking. We think that our possessions belong to us and are to be used for our own purposes and desires and reasons and gains. And in this section on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes against all that is natural to us showing us again that the gospel is supernatural. It gives a supernatural power that goes far beyond anything we can do in our own power. And Jesus will give four types of situations and responses to the one who belongs to the kingdom of heaven. With each part of this sermon, you'll, you have already seen, Jesus turns up the heat, makes it more and more difficult. He wants to strip us of our self-dependence, 
of our self-reliance, that we would feel the weight of our utter inability before a holy God. And throughout his teaching and his way of life, Jesus reverses the natural order of personal conflicts, doing things according to God's ways, not according to the natural ways of man. And so he calls on his disciples to obey his commands, even and especially in the face of great personal challenge. Jesus' goal is to reverse the situation. Look at what he does. He changes the emphasis from taking or receiving from someone to giving to others and sacrificing for them. He reverses the order. That is what he did for those he came to seek and to save and to serve. And now he calls on we who know him as Lord and Savior to do the same. Even back then, in the world of Jesus, it was a place where people stood for their rights and were offended by slights and offenses given by others, whether real or perceived. As the light of the world, however, Jesus offers a very different way of living, one that reflects the nature of those who have been born again by the Spirit of God. As Brian helpfully helped us understand last week that the law was given for a redeemed people, a purchased people, a delivered people. It's the same for us today. Because we have been redeemed from the law of sin and death, we can now obey the law of the Spirit and life as we are empowered by the Spirit of God who gives us new birth. This is a way that is truly transformational. And so Jesus is telling us not to be so concerned to stand up for our own rights, to defend our own honor, or to seek justice on our own terms, or even worse, personal vengeance. Jesus is not looking to establish a greater list of rules for righteousness in the law. No, he's bringing in a greater righteousness based on principles that are different from those of the earth. They're based in heaven itself. It is that greater righteousness than of the scribes and the Pharisees that he has brought in, that he lived out, and that he imputes to us at the moment that we believe. These kingdom principles that he is teaching us about and the ethics that flow from them focus on the well-being of other people and not on the personal interest of those who follow Jesus. Well, as he teaches about interpersonal conflict in our first major point, he says that the law's application deals with, and this is part A, retribution, not revenge. Retribution, not revenge. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This statement occurs three times in the law, in Exodus, in Leviticus, and in Deuteronomy. And as I've said, there were similar laws in the ancient Near East, but when Moses was given the law, it was to limit the punishment of crime. But it was also to underline the necessity of punishing crime. And so in the same law, as the law was given and saying, let the law be equitable in its application, it's saying it must be applied. And even God saying things like, show them no mercy. Show the criminals no mercy. Punish them, but punish them in correct accordance with the law. The focus was on legitimate retribution for a crime and was not to be punitive. The law wanted to avoid the attitude of someone like Lamech that we see in Genesis chapter 4. Lamech was a proud, boastful, arrogant, wicked man. And he boasts to his family, a man insulted me, so I killed him. And I'm going to, if anyone does anything against me, I will be avenged 77 times. That expression will come up later in the Gospel of Matthew. 
but the law was intended with eye for an eye to not allow 77-fold retribution, but to allow that which was equitable, not excessive. It was for retribution, not revenge. That's because the law's application, part B, is that justice is the goal. You can fill out your sermon outline here. Justice is the goal. Think about it. It is the epitome of justice that proper administration be given against a crime, that a crime be properly punished. That is justice in action. That is the law's intent. While it seems extreme to some today who talk about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, this was actually improvement on how things were handled in ancient days, or for that matter, often in current days, where sometimes somebody does something and somebody wants to one-up them, and then they one-up, and they one-up, and they one-up. There's not any equity. There's just a continuation of violence and harm one against the other. This law was to be handled by the state authorities. Now, the Latin expression here is lex talionis. It means the law of the claw or the talon and referred to often as the law of retaliation or retribution. Now, when taken out of context and taken out of the official courts, it could be misused as a basis for personal revenge. Yet this law, as we have said, was not to be used for private reasons, but it was to be accomplished through the proper laws and courts that Jesus the Lord had put in place. But over the centuries, the Jews began to adapt this principle for personal vengeance. But the law itself was intended to discourage personal vengeance. Yes, sin must be punished. Yes, sin will be punished. But according to God's ways, not according to our own invented ways, because we won't be quite as equitable or as just as God would be. So as Jesus unfolds the true meaning of this law, he gives four situations in rapid-fire fashion, and they just flow out of the text that we're looking at today. He shows how to respond to each one. First, we'll see a personal conflict that results in some type of public insult and humiliation. The second one deals with the legal situation and the settlement of the claim. The third one involves authorities who are over us in a certain area, whether it's military or just regular government authority. And the fourth involves dealing with those who make us uncomfortable. Each one challenges us, especially as they get to the heart of the matter, which is the matter of the heart. Oh, how we need God to continually search out and cleanse, cleanse out our hearts, because our hearts are prone to run away from him. But the first situation that we will see, and in your notes, this will be major point two, reverse the order. Reverse the order. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Turn to him the other also. Now in the word of God, at several occasions, the Lord himself said that vengeance was his prerogative. It was to be left with him. That was quoted in Deuteronomy. The apostle Paul will quote it again in Romans chapter 12. We'll take a look at that momentarily. But here Jesus goes one step beyond retribution. He says, don't even resist the evildoer. And he doesn't seem to be making a distinction between passive and active resistance, between legal and illegal resistance. It's a radical statement. Just let it hang. Do not resist the evil one. Don't stand up for yourself. That's the exact opposite of how we feel, how we think, how we act on a regular basis. I think what he's trying to say is, look, do not resist the evil person. If God is in control, he's in control of this situation as well. 
Now remember, Jesus is referring here to private matters between individuals, not necessarily to public ones. In private disputes, Jesus is saying we need to lay down our right to hit back, the exact thing that we often want to do. There is a role, if we take the whole of the scriptures, there is a role for standing up for others, and at times even for ourselves. But prudence and patience are needed because our hearts are so easily deceived. And we must not give ourselves so much credit that we think we can always easily discern that. And so we need to take to heart this challenge to not resist the evil one. Think of the context here. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. To be slapped on the cheek back then, as is now, was a grave insult. To be slapped on the right cheek was the ultimate insult. Why was that the case? Well, most people were right-handed. It is impossible to slap a person on the right cheek with the right hand. It's not like I can reach all the way around and then come from the back and slap them like that. So how do I slap them on the right cheek? It's when I turn and I give them the back of my hand and comes across their right cheek with a slap of impunity, with a slap of judgment. To receive the back of the hand was a grave and great insult. So what does Jesus say? In response to receiving a great public and personal insult, the back of the hand, Jesus says to do nothing, but in fact to turn to him the other cheek as well. This is the same Jesus who several verses earlier has said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In words that are considered impossible by critics today, and perhaps you're even sitting there in your chair this morning saying, it's impossible. Jesus says that if you are publicly insulted, turn the other cheek to your adversary and be ready to be insulted again. This is impossible in the flesh, according to our human nature. But the Sermon on the Mount has been showing how a redeemed people live. It is addressing the right use of emotions, the right use of thoughts, the right use of actions. It gets to the heart of the matter in our human nature. Because we know that we are quick to seek revenge and to get even. We know that we want to win. We want to be right. We want to be in control. We want to give slap for slap, insult for insult, and even go beyond. We want to get even or more. We want to up the stakes and try to humiliate the one who would seek to humiliate us. Jesus tears all of that down and brings in a new moral order. It's as if he's saying, you, you claim to belong to me? Then act like it. Be willing to endure insults and humiliation and trust God to be your defender. Our God is an able defender who is able to protect and defend and provide for his children. Do you believe that? And if you do, you will act accordingly. Jesus knows how hard this is without him. He will teach on this subject several times throughout the Gospels. And another place is in Luke chapter 18, verse 7. Now in the context, 
there is a widow who seeks justice from her adversary and is going to an unrighteous judge who gets tired of listening to her and finally is going to acquiesce. And Jesus said at that time, knowing that God is our defender, knowing that God hears our pleas, this is what Jesus said in Luke 18, 7, will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? And of course, the answer is no. He knows the proper time, the proper way, the proper method for intervening. God is able to bring vindication and justice to his children. Now, we might joke at this point and say, well, here am I, send me, Lord. I'm willing to be an instrument of God's righteous acts. But we're not called to that. We're not called to be self-appointed righteousness cops who carry out God's justice for him. That is the role of the legal authorities over us, wherever they might be in whatever level. And if those authorities that are over us act unjustly, they will be held to account by the Holy One of Heaven. We are to trust the God who has saved us, who has called us, that he will preserve us, that he is able to vindicate us. And Jesus is the one that gives us command. Now let's remind ourselves who he is. The God-man. The God-man who came to live among us so that he might bring us back to God. And this God-man faced far more injustice than we ever will. Yet he did not seek his own revengeance, his own vengeance or retaliation. If the Holy One of Heaven was willing to be humiliated by those he had created, we must not allow our egos to get in the way in order to seek our own retaliation. Too often, it is our own insecurities that blind our vision. Too often, it is our own selfish ambitions that get in the way of seeing clearly where we want to seek our own vengeance. We want to seek our own glory instead of seeking the glory of God. But the kingdom way that God has brought in Christ teaches us to serve others. And by his grace and his power and for his glory, shows others the difference that Jesus makes. I think former Congressman Dick Armey captured well what Jesus is saying here when he said this, you cannot get ahead while you are getting even. Good words, good application of this statement of Jesus here in Matthew chapter five. Listen to what the apostle Paul wrote about this when he wrote to the church in Rome in Romans chapter 12, verse 19 says, beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now this requires faith. It requires patience. It requires wisdom. But the Lord provides those things to those who put their trust in him. This is something that Jesus modeled for us. And this is something that Jesus accomplished for us. I want you to write in your notes Isaiah 50, verses 6 to 9. Isaiah 50 verses 6 to 9 is a messianic prophecy where we are told what would happen to the Messiah and how he would respond as a consequence. Listen as I read these verses. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? 
Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The mouth will eat them up. Think of the images that are there. This is a prophecy that was given 700 years before the time of Christ. And Christ came and fulfilled it perfectly. Think about that. Jesus took our offenses, our accusations, our false uh, actions, our sins, and bore all of that to the cross. Think about it. He bore our sins, our offenses, our accusations, bore them to the cross. And listen, and there he bore the back of the hand of God for our sins so that we might be freed and forgiven before him. He took the backhand of God to fulfill the righteous punishment that our sin deserved. In a culture where a man would do anything to avoid being ashamed or dishonored publicly, Jesus says, be willing to be humiliated because you belong to me. That's what he did for us. And now he calls us Indeed, he commands us to follow him, and he empowers us to do that for others, what he did for us. Now, friends, we need to prepare, because the day, I believe, is coming when our culture will demand that we bow the knee to its idols or we be publicly humiliated. How will we respond? I think we need to recognize the reality that we may need to have a theology of getting fired. A theology of having things taken away from us. A theology of even having our freedom taken away because we will not bow the knee to Baal of the culture, but will only bow the knee before Christ. Are we ready to respond that way? We live among a people who are more willing to break a relationship than to be shamed or challenged or shown to be wrong. The gospel calls us to a much higher level of living. God's grace allows us to turn the other cheek when we would rather clench our fist or wag our tongue. All those latter things come easy to us. We're really good at wagging our tongue or clenching our fist. And then we try to justify our own way when Jesus calls us to a higher way of turning the other cheek. John Newton was a former slave trader who had a marvelous conversion to Christ, became a minister of the gospel, and wrote the song Amazing Grace. And he said this about personal vendetta and vindication. He said, what will it profit a man if he gains his cause and silences his adversary, if at the same time he loses that humble, tender frame of spirit in which the Lord delights? If your goal in life is to win at all costs, you will find that you will lose a lot more than you could win. Because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The gospel reverses the shame that causes us to respond with humility and trust in the Lord, who will never fail to reward those who obey him. Next, Jesus gives the challenge, which is point three, settle beyond the limit. Settle beyond the limit. The next verse says, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, the first instance we've seen was a public challenge that threatened our honor on a personal and public level. 
We're not to seek to fight back merely to protect our own honor or simply to win. But in this situation, it's a legal setting. Jesus said, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic. Now, the word for tunic here is the word chiton, which refers to the garment that is worn next to the body. It was the undergarment of antiquity. And the word for to take is active. It means to take by force or to seize something. The context is that someone is taking you to court, demanding the equivalent of your undergarment. Now remember that clothes were rare and valuable in the ancient world. Materials were not as available as they are today, and a person did not have a closet full of clothes. He only had a few articles of clothing, which were made with great effort and cost. If someone asks for your t-shirt, Jesus says, then give him your outer cloak as well. The outer cloak was that heavy garment that they wore to protect them against the weather, and it provided warmth for them while they slept at night. So think about some passages like Deuteronomy 24 and Exodus 22, where if a man owed another man money, he was to give up his cloak during the day. And what would that remind him of? I better work hard to earn money to pay back this debt. But at night, he was to be given his cloak back so that he would not spend the night without proper covering and proper comfort. That's how important the cloak was. So what is Jesus teaching here? He's saying if someone takes you to court for a small matter, show them that the meaning of the gospel means that you might be willing to give them even more than what they ask. Now remember, Jesus is an Eastern man, speaking in an Eastern context, not in the Western world. He's not standing on the streets of Los Angeles as he's preaching here. So he is not literally saying you should leave the courtroom naked and without any clothes. What he is teaching is that we should be willing to let others take what would be costly if it's for the cause of Christ. So don't spend your time just trying to defend yourself and your ways all the time. Be willing to lose some things. Be willing to lose everything for the sake of the gospel. Think about this. If this morning you are in Christ and you know him as your Lord and Savior, and you know without a shadow of a doubt that he has redeemed you, he has saved you, he's put his spirit within you, and he is preparing a place for you in heaven, you have everything you need. You have him, who is the greatest treasure of all. So let him be your provider. Let him be your protector. Paul spoke the same way when he warned the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He said it's better to even be ripped off and mistreated in the courts than to let the name of Christ be impugned. We can trust God to be our provider and our protector. Will you? Will you say to him, yes, Lord, you are my protector. Yes, Lord, you are my provider. Yes, this is a hard saying of Jesus, but we need to resist the temptation to simplify what he is saying, to somehow make it manageable. That's what the Jews spent centuries trying to do, trying to make the law doable, accomplishable, if that's a word, in human terms. And Jesus said, no, the intention of the law was to point us beyond human strength to divine strength. And the law, as it's given here in the Sermon on the Mount, is given to those who have been touched by the grace of God, who will be quick not to seek their own way, not to win every battle, not to be right on every issue but to respond with grace and humility even in the midst of difficulty. 
If you're in Christ, if you have truly repented of your sins, you know that you were guilty before God. And with the passing of time, as you grow in holiness and draw closer to God, you realize there was a lot more things that you were guilty of and, in fact, still are guilty of. So stop worrying about what others might accuse you of and just keep short accounts with God and keep turning to Him. Don't seem to fight every wound to your pride, whether it's real or imagined. Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And those who have received the mercy of God will be quick to show mercy to others because mercy triumphs over judgment. Well, next, Jesus will instruct his disciples to go the extra mile. Go the extra mile. And our text continues. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now, this third situation deals with those that are in authority over us, whether it's military or government officials. And what makes this situation especially poignant, if not painful, for the Jewish people is that Jesus was talking about doing this to those who were mistreating them. You see, they were under the occupation of Rome. The Roman soldiers were Gentiles. They were pagans. They had different ways of life. And the Jews lived under the heavy hand of Rome with heavy taxation. And they had limits on their freedom and their movement. So in that context, Jesus says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, what's the background? Well, under Roman law, a soldier could force anyone to carry goods for him for one mile. Literally, it's a thousand paces. All who were under the authority of Rome were subject to her beck and call. You could be walking down the street, going about your business, and a soldier could stop you and force you to carry something for him for one mile or a thousand paces. We see an example of that in the trials of Jesus after the Savior had fallen three times on his way to the cross. They pulled a man out of the crowd, Simon of Cyrene, and said, carry the cross. Imagine being asked to carry something for a mile when it probably took you out of your way and away from what you were planning on doing maybe even in the opposite direction. Imagine the inconvenience of having to carry perhaps the very weapons that were used to subdue you as you languished under occupation. Moreover, these soldiers also had the right to use forced labor to accomplish other tasks, such as the building of roads and bridges. Imagine having no rights to resist such a situation, except under severe punishment or even death. But to that situation, Jesus says, Walk with them a mile and then ups the ante. Don't do it just for one mile. Do it for another mile. And not only that, don't do it under compulsion, but do it voluntarily. Be willing to go the extra mile. Such an act of service would be rare for a friend. It would be rare for a countryman. It would be almost unthinkable to do for an enemy. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. He's reversing the natural order by imposing a supernatural order that the gospel brings in through the kingdom of heaven. Imagine being Simon the Zealot, who was one of the 12 apostles called and chosen by God. He was part of the Zealots. The Zealots were committed to armed rebellion against Rome. So imagine with that mindset, hearing this command of Jesus to carry something for that very same Roman soldier, not just one mile, two miles, two miles for your occupier, 
the one that before you met Jesus, you intended to overthrow with violence. With such a dramatic command, Jesus shows clearly that the rules of the kingdom of heaven are completely different from the rules of the kingdom of men. He is reversing the situation using each example that would humiliate someone, listen, that would humiliate someone as an opportunity to show service and to do good for others. This unusual teaching, however, as tough as it is, is only going to prepare us for the next section where Jesus says we're to love our enemies. Now let's think about application at this point. In this context, if someone asks you to walk a mile, go with them two miles. It was in that context that the Apostle Paul wrote to believers in the letter to the church at Rome, telling them that they were to live under the Roman system and submit to the authorities, show honor to them, pay taxes, show respect, because it was God who put those authorities in place in the first place. So by Jesus saying that we are to go the extra mile, He's saying the first mile, as it were, would be, well, that's natural. That's what the law, that's what the, the Romans would require. But going that extra mile is supernatural. But think of what Jesus did. He left the glories of heaven and all of the privileges that he had and came to this earth to live a life of perfect righteousness for over 30 years. And he went that extra mile, going all the way to the cross so that he would die for those that were his enemies who would become his friends. Jesus showed us in word and deed how to treat and serve those who had mistreated him because he lived it out first. And now he teaches us to go that extra mile and to do as he has done. And then we get to the last situation as we come near the end of our time. He, he reaches out or he teaches out showing the importance of a spirit of generosity. That's major point five, a spirit of generosity. Give to the one who begs from you, he said, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, this fourth situation you can see clearly refers to material possessions. Now, in Deuteronomy 15, the Israelites were taught to be generous with one another. And here Jesus goes beyond being generous just with the fellow countrymen to include their neighbors and all those around them which would even include those who would be their enemies. Now, Before trying to lighten the weight of this command, let it rest upon your soul for a moment. Think of the words, give to those in need, to all who beg from you, give to them and want to borrow from you. At the very minimum, what this teaches is that all that we have, we're to hold with an open hand. Now the Jewish leaders over the years, they tried to make all of the law manageable. Jesus does not. He pushes us beyond our ability so that we despair of ever being able to do the law in our own power. And that is the point of the gospel. Now, as we look at this verse and we look at each verse, we do the same thing that we do with all the verses. We have to check it against the whole counsel of God. And what we see that we're called to here is a spirit of generosity. We should be known as the most generous, the most liberal in our giving both in our attitudes and our actions and in our words and our material possessions. Now, we are not called literally to give ourselves into poverty and destitution. If we take the whole counsel of Scripture, you recall a number of weeks ago we looked at the poor. We saw that there was a difference between the professionally poor who just simply seek to exploit the feelings of others and are not willing to be part of their own solution. 
And that's in contrast to those who are legitimately poor because of things like death and war and disease or disaster. And really rare is the person who could literally give to everyone who asks of him. But don't miss the point here. A spirit of generosity that holds all things lightly and openly and allows God to give freely, but also allows God to take freely and distribute them as he sees fit and what would give him the most glory. Think about it, my friends. All that we have comes from him. And it all belongs to him. And it is all to be available for his use. If we have been blessed to gain any degree of wealth, and let's be honest here in North America, we have a degree of wealth that the rest of the world or most of the rest of the world merely envies, wishing that they could have. If we are blessed to have a measure of wealth, we must confess that it is he who has given us the strength, the thinking, the resources, and the opportunities to produce that wealth. Therefore, it ultimately doesn't belong to us. It belongs to him. Life in the kingdom of heaven seeks to use what one has received to look out for the interest of others, to serve them, to promote the cause of Christ around the world. So whenever possible, err on the side of generosity. And if it happens that you end up giving to someone or to something and they end up exploiting you, God is big enough and able enough to deal with that situation as well. The God who calls us, who saves us, who commands us to follow him, is generous and lavish in his grace, in his mercy, in his kindness, in his generosity. And he calls us to imitate him. Charles Spurgeon captures it well where he said, a miser is no follower of Jesus. Can't be. Because the nature of Jesus is kindness that overflows in lavish love and mercy and generosity to those around him. Now, Jesus will have a lot more to say about money and possessions in the gospel according to Matthew. But the general attitude is that all that we have belongs to him. And that we who belong to him are not to worry about material resources, but trust God to provide them and be generous with those around us who do when he does. So we've seen four examples that reveal the true heart or the true nature of the heart of the Christian. Whereas we are by nature quick to hold on to insults, quick to make accusations towards others, quick to defend our own honor instead of seeking the honor of God, the gospel reverses the order of things. And even in the midst of challenging situations, by his grace, we can reflect the difference that the gospel makes in the person who is truly born again by the Spirit of God. But we see that what Jesus commands of his followers here is something that he did first, accomplished and modeled. So in that sense, he's demanding nothing here that he himself did not act out and do. Listen to the words of Isaiah 53, a messianic prophecy that Jesus fulfilled. Verses 7 and 8 of Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. When oppressed and afflicted, he opened not his mouth. 
The Apostle Peter confirmed this when he wrote in his first epistle, chapter one, uh, chapter two of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter two, beginning in verse 21, which says, for to this you have been called, it's in the context of suffering for the cause of Christ, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus was truly the greatest servant of all. He went the extra mile leaving the glories of heaven to come and live among us so that we might be saved. He gave generously, even to those who did not believe in him. He healed those who begged of him, many of whom, like nine out of the ten lepers, who never returned to even say thanks. He was the son of man who came to serve others and to give his life for many. And now we who are his servants, his slaves, the one he has called, the ones he has commanded, are to follow him in service to others and then giving of our lives so that others might also be blessed and may see the goodness of our God. Left to the flesh, these things are impossible. They are intended to be. They can only happen for those whose hearts have been renewed and set free by the Spirit of God and who are walking in joyful obedience to the Lord. They've realized that they can serve others because they were first served by Christ. Now, next week, Jesus is going to up the ante even more. He's going to tell us we need to love our enemies. And perhaps the most difficult teaching he gives in the Sermon on the Mount. But he will challenge us nonetheless. And I know you're like me. We need to learn what this looks like. And so I invite you to join with me in praying for us this next week. Pray for yourself. Pray for me as I pray for you. Pray for those that, honestly, you would consider your enemies right now. And pray that God would do a great work in our midst that would result in greater reconciliation, greater revival, greater repentance, greater unity, greater faithfulness, more of Jesus and less of us, more of his glory and less of our pride. Will you join me in praying for that over this next week? But until then, what are some lessons that we can take away from this sermon? still see them in your sermon outline. I've given five. Following our Lord's example, do not respond in kind when treated wrongly. Respond as the Lord would instruct you. This is a supernatural work. Walking in the gospel, experiencing the new life in Christ, and obeying him is supernatural work. So respond as the Lord would instruct you. Secondly, in the Lord's power, do not seek your own good, but the good of others with your efforts and possessions. Invest yourself in others. Give yourself away to others. Give your stuff away to others. That's what Jesus did. That's what builds the kingdom of heaven. Number three, because Christ is our highest goal, it is better to suffer loss for the cause of Christ than to lose fellowship with Christ because we respond sinfully to others. Yes, it's still the case that we can choose to sin, that we can choose to disobey, we cannot choose the consequences of our sin and disobedience. Far better 
is to have such a love relationship with Jesus that you don't even want to disobey him. You don't want to displease him. You want to do what he calls you to do, and you don't want to lose fellowship with him, even if that means you having to be temporarily humiliated here. Fourthly, by turning the other cheek, Jesus bore the wrath that we deserved. Therefore, let us turn the other cheek so that others may experience the mercy of God that we ourselves have experienced. If you've been touched by mercy, show mercy. If you've been saved by grace, show grace. If you've been touched by kindness, show kindness. And lastly, because God has been so generous with us in Christ, let us joyfully be generous with others. What do you have that you've not received? Nothing. And if you've received from God, be willing to be an instrument of distribution and sharing it with others. And you'll find that it's the greatest life there is, joyfully giving yourselves away for his service. Let us pray. Now, Father, there's such a great teaching before us. There's such a great challenge that we have. And Father, even in our own hearts, we try to justify our own sinful behavior. We try to create reasons for why we can be excused from following these commands. So Father, forbid it. And we just come clean before you and say, we can't do it, Father, but we want to. And so empower us by your spirit that we might. Because we know, Father, you can command anything. We just ask that you give what you command. And because of the indwelling Holy Spirit, we know that we can trust you. I pray that across this room this morning, there are people that are touched by the grace of God to make changes that will cause them to grow more like Christ. That there would be a new fragrance of Christ that would flow across our congregation that would lead to greater spiritual unity and fruitfulness as we seek your face. And help us, Father, as you have been with us, to be quick to forgive those who come to us. And if need be, to be quick to confess to others those that we have wronged as we prepare even for next week on what it means to love our enemies. Father, would you dismiss, or dismiss us now in your peace as we come to the end of this time in the word? Would you guide us this week for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, dear friends, for hanging in there with me this morning. As you now go into your final song, you're invited to stand. And Pastor Brian will come and give the final prayer as we close out our service today.